and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 125, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And welcome to this week's podcast. Now, uh, this show comes out every week, every Friday, a little treat before the weekend. And on this show, we kind of cover everything from the golden age of video gaming. Now, that could be anything like, you know, old systems. It could be 8 and 16-bit computers. Classic games. Arcade machines from back in the day. It could be, you know, consoles. Anything from, like, you know, the Xbox all the way back to, well, the Intellivision, which we may have some exciting news to talk about in just Ooh. a little bit. Now, talking about going way back in the day as well, Atari, obviously the first iconic video games company. Oh, genre-defining. You know, genres were made. Yeah. on the Atari system early on. You know, that's what I think, actually. make a good point there, because with those old systems, there was no real reference before it. So you were essentially making not only a style of game from scratch and the gameplay and everything, you're writing the rules as you went along. Totally. Nobody had ever played that type of game. Yeah, so the people that we talked to from that era, I think, always have something very special about them. You know, they really were pioneering. And this week's guest, we have... A really special guest coming up in around 15 minutes on the show, Peter Leeper. Now, he was a creator of Boulder Dash. Oh, I love Boulder <laughs> Dash. Do you remember that? Like, there were so many clones of that. And interestingly, it was the first home computer game to get an arcade conversion. Okay. So, a lot of the games came from arcade, like, you know, Space Invaders, and they'd do their own version on the console. This was the total opposite way around. So, we'll, we'll see how that happened. <laughs> You're right, because it was like Pac-Man, then to the home system. Yeah, and yeah. asteroids. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is going to be fascinating, because like you said, in terms of games that were cloned on so many systems that idea boulder dash i mean i remember having games on the commodore called um like rockman and return of rockman and well that that is actually boulder dash as well so we will go into that later but uh those versions were were exactly the same just different names oh interesting all right i'm looking forward to this one peter leeper we're going to be talking to him on the retro hour podcast getting really old school back in the atari days he's coming up on the retro hour podcast very soon now i do hope tonight ravi you're gonna get a good night's sleep Oh, God, yeah, because I've got got the train. Well, actually, I should be in Glasgow at the moment. As we're talking, um, we're pre-recording this, guys, but we're doing Play Expo in Glasgow. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. So we've got Kim Justice, we've got Slopes, and possibly Did You Know Gaming as well. Great YouTube channel. Yeah, big fan of them. Oh, fantastic. And we're going to have a good chat because they've just been doing stuff with Sega as well. Yeah, like pretty much everyone who I love on YouTube is doing stuff with Sega at the moment. So, but... How long's a train from here and Nottingham up to, up to Glasgow? It's then? about five hours. Um, I'm really bad with planes. I really don't like them. I don't get on with them. Um, they're all right for short trips, yeah. but, but going up to Glasgow, I'm, I'm going to sit on the train. I love trains. I'm a bit of a train nerd. Well, to be fair, by the time you got uh, a plane up there, by the time you got to the airport, waited for your flight, checked in and all that, I mean, it's probably just as quick to get the train anyway. Exactly, yeah. and uh, I've got Breaking Bad... So I'm just going to sit there, and I've never seen Breaking Bad, so I'm going to watch a load of it. You didn't get your hack Nintendo Switch in time, then? No. <laughs> I might get one there. So this is going to be amazing. I mean, I, I can't make it, unfortunately, because I'm going to win holiday tomorrow. Um, I'll be in sunny Spain. I'm sure it'll be a bit warmer than Glasgow. but you know, oh, It's, it's good, because Play Glasgow's quite a new event. Yeah. And, you know, it's only been going for a couple of years, and... It's good to actually be going up there because we've been to the other play events in the in the UK, yeah. and 
they're pretty established, so it's good to see a new one, a fresh one. And of course, we're going to have Play London later on this uh, year as well. Yeah, then we're back in Blackpool, and there's another Play Manchester already been announced for next year. Obviously, I mean, if you are new to the show, well, Ravi, now we, we do all the panels, uh, the yeah. play events that so we have. All you know, essentially, if you like the interview section of this podcast, we take it around the country to the Play Expo events and we host it live. So you're going to be doing a panel um, at Play, aren't you, for about an hour on on Saturday? Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably going to be on the Saturday. Yeah. Um, this is just a kind of test to test the waters because. Because the other one, oh God, how many panels do we do on that? I think it's about four or five a day. Yeah, yeah. Days, so this like one's ten. just like a test. And I think there's going to be a lot of uh, drinking and just kind of chilling with the Scottish guys. That's standard. Be good. Any yeah. play event, we always have a bit of a party. So if you are going to be around this weekend, uh, do look out for Ravi and uh, Kim Justice Slopes and all the crew are going to be up there in Glasgow. So um, yeah, and we're actually going to be playing out the panel that you do on the show next week as well. So, yeah, yeah, uh, that's a touch wood if we have recording, but we have actually purchased some recording equipment now, yeah. so we are uh, much more solid. And you're taking about four backups. We've got, tell Kim to bring a recorder. Slow yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. shove an iPhone on the table, everything. Nothing can go wrong, so yeah. we'll bring that next week's show. Now, of course, the Retro Hour podcast couldn't keep coming to you every single week without the people who make it possible. Now, we do have a little bit on our website, and as we say every week, you know, it's, totally optional you know if you want to help us out that's great if you don't this show will always be free we'll always put it out there for free we'll never charge for it but if you'd like to help us into the running of the podcast um, because at the moment you know we do get donations coming in every week we pay for quite a lot of it out of our own pockets as well which we're fine with but if you'd like to help us out and make a little tip jar donation all you've got to do is nip onto our website you'll find a little button on the homepage for paypal um, if you're into all of the uh, the cryptocurrency stuff as well, we've got that too. Oh we? yeah, definitely. We're um, back on the up now, I think, isn't it? Oh god, no! <laughs> it's, it's like a roller coaster, isn't it? That stuff. So if you've got any go and spare, um, obviously anything we get does go 100% back into the running of the show. You can make a donation through the website theretrohour.com. And for doing that, drum roll, please, Revy. You get a mention in the Hall of Fame. Oh, that wasn't that. That sounded like something off the X Factor, isn't it? I've been practicing that voice. Yeah, you'll find your place in the Hall of Fame, just like this week. Dan Threw, Neil Gins, Hubert Stanik, and Roy Galotti, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same. All you've got to do is leave a little tip in the jar at theretrohour.com. Get a shout in a future show. Now, before we talk to Peter Leeper, this week's special guest, speaking of going old school, it, we've been saying this for like every other week. There's like, you know, a new I, console <laughs> coming out, a new console, and we're just headlining each show, going, oh, what console is it this time? It is like retro console re-release of the week at the moment, isn't it? So here's one, I must admit, I didn't see this one coming, and this is the Intellivision. Yeah, so the Intellivision was a, it was an American system, wasn't it? And it was really early on. Um, 1979, it came out. And they have, like... Really early titles, you know, there's a lot of kind of Space Invaders and stuff like that, lots of clones. And I've really not played on one that much. I've I've interviewed people on this wonderful podcast about them, but um, I've not had much experience well, I've hands-on. Played, well, I've played them at you know, retro gaming events. I play, there's normally a couple there, and there's like Astro Smash and Night Stalker. That's one of the big games yeah. there too. And this is really interesting because it's kind of been a soft announcement. You know, normally with like when, you know, I probably shouldn't mention it in the same sentence, but the Coleco Chameleon, for example, yeah, yeah. the Atari VCS box. It was all singing, all dancing, promos out there, news articles on like every mainstream tech site and everything. Yeah, but all this, the Metro and all the press were covering it. Yeah, yeah everyone going nuts about it. But this was actually just a live stream that was done last week uh, from a guy called Tommy Tallarico. 
Now, Tommy is a very, very established video game music composer. He's done over 300 games. Wow. He's actually a Guinness World Record holder. Um, he does the video games live shows as well. Um, he's been doing those for 13 years, taking video game music live on the road. He's uh, presented three American uh, gaming television shows back in the 90s and early 2000s. I recognise his face, you know. I recognise well, it when I see this. Yeah, I'll tell you why you might, because he's actually the cousin of uh, Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith. Oh, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> and he's, he's a music producer professionally. Does Have you heard of the, the uh, dance producer, BT? Uh, no. Oh, he's, uh, he's been going for years, but he, he's produced his next album, and he's been doing his tour and everything as well. So he's got a lot of credential behind him, this guy. He's not some fly-by-night operator. And I imagine with his kind of track record, probably got a few quid in the bank, yeah. <laughs> I'd imagine. So he is now, quite bizarrely, the president of Intellivision, this relaunch company. Okay. The reason that he's done this, apparently he's got the trademark and everything, is because he grew up playing the Intellivision. It was his first ever system. You know, that launched, like we said, 1979. And he's managed to get the license through. I think Mattel owned it for originally, didn't they? And uh, it's probably gone through a million and one companies. But now he's managed to get his hands on it. So what he's saying is, this is not anything you're going to see in the shops or anything anytime soon, but there's going to be a full official big press release and announcement probably in about October. And he's hoping this is going to sell in mainstream shops and everything. The kind of ETA at the moment is probably Christmas 2019. Is there any mention of Mini? Nowhere. <laughs> no, no mention of Mini. So this may be a fully, a full-size console. We need some more fullies. Yeah. <laughs> Losing all my Mini consoles down the back of the couch and everything at the moment. <laughs> so he's relaunching television um, as a California-based company. So he's a president. Apparently there is some original Intellivision team members um, involved in the project oh, as well. Oh, that's good. So what he's saying is what he wants to do with this is... He wants to kind of bring back video games for families to play at home. Mm. So he's not going to compete with Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo. You know, he's saying we haven't got a billion dollars. We're not going to try and get that market. But I guess maybe it will kind of be like the market maybe that we had. You know, where it was like families that are playing for the, fa- the family home computer. That was it. Yeah. yeah. And it's not going to be strictly a retro system. He said it will come with an emulator to play all the old games. Oh, cool. But they are going to have new stuff on there as well. He said oh, it. new stuff. Now, that's, I find that interesting because all these mini consoles, they, they always talk about old libraries, don't they? And yeah. there's, there's never any kind of focus on new stuff apart from the Atari, Atari uh, <laughs> vaporware. But, um, yeah. Which I think is actually up on Indiegogo now. But yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. When there's a prototype on it. <laughs> there you go. But yes, yeah, so he's saying this thing won't run Netflix. They're not going to try and do 3D. It will connect to Wi-Fi. You will be able to buy games on it. There'll be an SD memory card slot in there as well. So it's essentially going to be, um, the target is going to be the non-gamer, the family. They want it simple. Um, a console where, no, a system where, you know, young and old gamers can play together mm-hmm. and have fun with that. I mean, essentially, I think it's kind of going for like the mobile gaming market. But obviously playing on a phone is very solitary, isn't it? So you kind of want to make it a living room fun device for families, I guess. Oh, I can't wait to see. Imagine if he's got some kind of contacts with the original case designers or, you know, the rights to have the old cases and stuff. I'm sure he's, if he's got the licensing and everything sorted, I'm sure he's uh, planned this for years. I mean, it's interesting that he used the Intellivision name because, I mean, to anyone under probably 30 at least, that's not going to mean anything. No, yeah. So if you're trying to appeal to kids as well, I'll be like I, a new brand. I don't know, though. I don't know in America, does it? I don't know. Maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe parents will tell the kids about it. We had one of these. But, I mean, to like an eight-year-old, I'd imagine that just seemed like a new brand, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. It's interesting, but um, I like the fact that he's been kind of realistic with it. He hasn't come out then being like, yeah, we're going to take on Microsoft, yeah, like the yeah. others have. And he's also promised, this is a good point, 
it's not going to be a crowdfunded. Okay, so it's going to actually be a retail product that's manufactured and delivered and not reliant on crowdfunding. Yeah, that, that's good. Yeah, so really, I mean, it's win-win then, isn't it, for consumers? You can't lose. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to see one of these. I'm excited to look out for news for this. There you go. Well, there's your next job. Rather get him on the show. Oh, yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And then I could actually have a go on the television. <laughs> and I'm sure you might have some uh, stories from, there's got to be some tales from back in the 80s and that, you know, partying with Aerosmith. Oh, yeah. Imagine those guys. They'd be wild. That might rival the Vince Desi Postal episode that we did from his uh, flat in Brooklyn, I think. Oh, yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that story. Very interesting. Now, if we do get him on the podcast, um, I think we'll need to dress for the occasion as well. And also, we mentioned that Play Expert Glasgow is coming up. And really, this is kind of the summer of retro gaming events. We're going to be at loads. And the one thing you always notice is, I can't, you know, we mentioned Aerosmith there. It's kind of like people going to see the favourite bands, because when you look at retro gaming shows, everyone kind of has T-shirts on with their favourite systems or games. You know, the crazy thing is, like, there's been T-shirts coming out of Primark and stuff. Yeah. And they've been doing launches for retro gaming stuff, but we've got a T-shirt here which is actually felt featured on the uh, Big Bang Theory. Sheldon was wearing it. Yeah. Um, I like that show, but you know they shouldn't have got girlfriends, should they? <laughs> that ruined it. <laughs> like, that ruined it. It was better when they when they were. Looking. Well, it just wasn't believable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, we do this every week in the show. We do little Easter eggs in there. I mean, we we found a couple of cool things that you might want to wear if you're off to a retro gaming event over the summer. And the first one is, yeah, like you said, this Big Bang Theory Sheldon Cooper in television video game T-shirt. This looks awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's for a game called Astro Smash, which uh, I've not actually played, but the pixels on it look ace. And, you know, it's just good having those big numbers and massive display. So check that out. If you uh, buy that through us, then you help support the podcast. Yeah, so we've got a little link um, in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Click on the Easter egg section. I've picked out a T-shirt as well, um, an Amiga A500 Kickstart Workbench Insert Disc T-shirt. Oh, of course, of course. (laughs) That's like standard for you, Dan. (laughs) The hand-holding the disc in only 10 on the Amiga 500 you got, which I don't think is actually copyright because it's not like a logo. And it's the wrong way around, isn't it, the hand? When he did that originally, he was looking at his hand when he drew it. Ah, left-handed. <laughs> yeah, ah, so, I never noticed that in all these years. Yeah? yeah, so there you go. So if you want to stand out of these shows, and you get these in loads of different colours as well, actually. So we'll put those in the show notes for any about, I think mine's 13.99. Yours about the same, 13.64. So we'll put the links to those in our show notes. Use our affiliate link and there uh, we'll get a couple of quid back to help run the podcast as well. And you'll look awesome at your retro gaming events this summer. Now this is quite interesting. A new Mega Drive game. We like it when these come out, don't we? New games for old systems. Oh, totally. That's that's the thing. Like I was just saying, you know, these mini systems come out and there's no new games coming out, apart from this one, obviously, and Tanglewood as well. I noticed um, the guy from Tanglewood actually posted a picture of the crate right. that he got delivered with the Tanglewood copies in. All the carts? Yeah. Oh, wow. But it was bigger than his door. It was outside on the front lawn yeah. of his house and he's had to like kind of take the crate apart and then individually bring all the carts in. I hope it didn't rain. I think you're going to say, like, take his windows out and get a crane in or something. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been commitment. Uh, but, you know, I think it is awesome the fact that people are doing this in 2018. People are bringing out Mega Drive games and they're going to all the effort of making them physical products. Yeah, and they're looking really good. They're looking like, you know, the standard of old Mega Drive games. Actually, a lot of old Mega Drive games are a lot worse yeah, but, well, than they, these. You know, and these are really the, well thought about. Well, they know the tricks have had like 25 years of programming experience. Yeah, and they've got all the new gaming techniques as well that are in there that you know just weren't there back in the days well this game is called Tanza and you've got to check out the music on this let me just uh, play a little bit of the kickstart trailer because I know you appreciate video game music (laughs) 
Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I love the explosions because they, they've got that uh, Mega Drive explosion where it's just really like... <laughs> Yeah, I might have to drop that on one of my DJ sets. <laughs> I've always loved the Mega Drive sound chip anyway. And this, I mean, it looks so much fun. It's kind of inspired by like Strider and games like that. It's a hack and slash platformer uh, produced exclusively for the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis. It looks quite Shadow of the Beastie, doesn't it? Actually, Yeah, I think it's kind of, you know, it's got a lot of influences from older games. As soon as I saw it, I was like Strider. That's what it made me think of. Probably because of the guy's weapon in the game too. Ah, yes. Um, and there's a lot in here as well. I mean, again, like with Tanglewood, it's going to be a boxed game. It's going to be, you know, put on a cartridge with a printed label, manuals in there as well. It will look like a Mega Drive game that you bought in the shops back in, like, 1991. Like multi-region as well, so you can use it on any system. Yeah, and there's going to be eight levels in here as well. Uh, different worlds, Old West, Ancient Rome, Flying Pirate Ships. There's sub-bosses for all the stages, end-of-level bosses as well. Uh, shops where you can do power-ups and stuff. Even secret little Easter eggs hidden in the game too. Well, he had he had quite a reasonable goal as well, which yeah. was £1,600, uh, and it's actually about £6,000. <laughs> so, uh, he smashed it. He smashed that, yeah. And there's still, like, you know, when the show comes out, there'll still be over two weeks left on it as well. And I, I think it's brilliant that the community get behind this as well. And like you said, this guy, he, he didn't take the mickey. He, he kind of set himself a reasonable goal, what it would take. He didn't want to get rich off doing it, obviously, and the community have rewarded him for doing that, which I think is wonderful, so... And I looked at that, and I, that just looks like a fun game, you know. And the fact that it's going to be a Mega Drive exclusive. Because a lot of them, they come out and they're like Android games, they just port them to the Mega Drive to get column inches and stories, you know, of morons like us. <laughs> I, I, I reckon there's going to be a factory somewhere where some guy was producing carts for years, and he was like, I'm going to give up. And then suddenly all these new games have come out, and he's like, oh, God, get, get the old machines going again. <laughs> <laughs> get the old uh, factory recap yeah. to get it back on the go. Well, speaking of community-driven stuff as well, um, it's always nice to see, I mean, you know, we love podcasts, we love YouTube, we love websites. But there is nothing like, for retro gaming enthusiasts, having a proper paper glossy magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really nice. And uh, even if the news is old and stuff, there's different stuff in there. And there's well-written articles as well. You know, you can really get deep into a game of, like, an old-school magazine. Yeah, I think there's no distractions when you're reading a magazine. If I'm reading an article on a website, you've got that many pop-ups and stuff going on. You think, oh, let's check to it. Oh, yeah, you can put it back, put it down, and then uh, continue it in the bath or whatever. It's really yeah. good with a magazine. You can't get your uh, podcast in the bath or you end up electrocuting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never tried, but yeah, you mentioned that. Well, this is going to be a new British retro gaming magazine called Fusion. Now, issue one is currently on pre-order. Um, and they're going to be bringing these out. Um, well, the first issue is coming out at the end of this month, end of June. And they're going to be releasing a new issue probably every two months. So this is off. a full print kind of a high-quality silk paper magazine. Yep. And it's going to be available, like, sent to your home. And that's for £4. Yeah. Which, which is, like, is yeah. amazing, really. Like, I've seen other magazines printed and maybe about 7 or £8. Quid, but £4 is great. And there's also going to be a PDF version. Can't imagine how cheap that would be. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, three ninety nine is really the price that gaming mags were back in the early nineties. Yeah, so it's kind of gone retro with the pricing as well. And there are, um, I'll put a link to their website, uh, fusiongamemag.com, in our show notes. But the artwork looks wonderful on it as well. I mean, there are a few little preview pages. There's one here of uh, Mario sixty four on the um, on the N sixty four, obviously. Even the cover as well, I think, you know, they've really nailed it with the artwork. It looks like, you know, again... Yeah, it looks it looks very professional, this is. Yeah, so it looks like a mag that you could have bought in the shops. So 
I always think it's great when you get new projects like this, and for that price, three ninety nine. I mean, that, that's a no brainer, really, isn't it? So. Well, a lot of fan made magazines. I, I I used to spend years printing off magazines and kind yeah. of rebuilding them myself and everything. But to get it sent to your house. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? I remember when, when I was a kid, we used to subscribe to mags, and it was always really exciting when they came through the door. And, you know, you'd, that'd be your morning boxed off then, you know, if it was a Saturday or something. Yeah. So, yeah, really good. Well, so, you'd be like, I'm going to find a place to read this and be really get into it, you know. <laughs> Lock your door, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Headphones on with some music in. Yeah, so if you want to recapture those glory days, because back in the day, it was all about magazines before the internet, wasn't it? So yeah. it's cool we've got a new one, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into this week's interview... Um, we've got to talk about this guy because I think he's incredible. Now, this is Janny Van Zyl, a name that may not be too familiar to um, our listeners outside of South Africa, but he's actually a pretty big deal over there, isn't he, this guy? Yeah, he's uh, the, the former head of iBurst, which seems to be a big South African company, and also he's the current head of Vodacom. Yeah, which, which I think are a mobile company. Yeah, yeah. And he was essentially one of the guys who launched uh, 3G in South Africa in 2005. What people don't know about him, usually, is he's actually got one of the largest private computer restoration operations in South Africa. Oh, yeah, and this looks majorly cool. If you're into your, like, kind of before and after pics of restoration, this site is so good for it. And he's got absolutely everything. You know, he's got some of the BBC micros here. He's got Commodore 64s. He's just got a wonderful collection and stuff that you wouldn't expect to see, like a, a Z80 yeah. in South Africa. And uh, even to the point, he obviously seems obsessed with computer games. It's a great article, this one is. Um, to the point that he got a Commodore 64 birthday cake from right. his daughter. <laughs> I always love it when people get those. You know, you see my like, Facebook groups and stuff, don't you? Like, you know, my wife's maybe like, you know, Sega Mega Drive cake and that. Yeah. That's awesome. And this guy, I mean, apparently his love for PC started in 1978. Um, his first computer, as most stuff was, and it was a kit. Uh, a CompuKit UK 101 with a 1 megahertz 6502 CPU, 4K of RAM, 1K of display memory when he was 14. And eventually went along, upgraded various systems and everything. And... The thing I love about this story is, I'd imagine this guy's probably got a few quid now because he's a pretty big deal at a major communications company. But the reason that he set up this project is because, like you and me, we've talked about this on the show before, you'd enjoy reading about these high-end computers and game systems in magazines yeah. that you can never afford. You can never afford, and I guess he's probably actually imported a lot of these into South Africa because they wouldn't be available in the general stores. He's got absolutely everything, a huge collection. What he's saying is, um, this is really cool, there's actually a group of people kind of, you know, in his, in his local area who've joined up together to form a vintage computing community and actually help each other out. So if someone needs a certain system, someone else might know where to get one, you know, like a, like a user's group where their job is to help each other find these systems. That's so cool that a CEO of a huge mobile phone company could be in this, like, user group and you'd be like, oh... Have you got a spare screw for the uh, 647? Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course I have. (laughs) (laughs) Come around my house. But again, I mean, looking through his pictures, you can tell that he really respects and loves these machines. Totally. I'm just looking at the ones with the towers in there, just drooling. (laughs) Like, oh, what's that? Maybe, oh, I recognise that case. It's like a BBC compact here that looked uh, dusty, beaten up, neglected. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, Retro Man Cave is Trash to Treasure series that he does. Yeah, yeah. Big Guy's been doing some recently as well, hasn't he, with a, a Vic 20 FC? Yeah, look at that Commodore 64 picture here. It looks like it, it had like a concrete 
bag of concrete poured over it. <laughs> something. At the end, it looks like it could have been brought brand new. But actually, now, I mentioned a big guy then. He did a video recently. I think it was restoring uh, a neglected Vic 20. He's been doing a series. Oh, God. Was that the one where it was like... Absolutely. It was covered in engine oil. Yeah, yeah I, I saw that. Yeah, that was, that was a momentous effort. And he got it up and running again. And he did actually say at the end of it, he imagined it probably came from like some old garage or someone who mm. was using it back in the 80s. And it's probably been in a shed or an attic for 20, 30 years. And he put a game into it and he said it's probably the first game that's ever been played on this system. And this computer thought that its life was over and it had been neglected and it was retired, but now it's got a new lease of life and someone new will enjoy it. And I think that's wonderful when, you know, these old systems do get a new lease of life. So Yeah, it's kind of like they're sitting there and they're like, somebody save me. (laughs) (laughs) And then he comes along and here you go, it looks amazing. So if you want to find out more about that, and uh, I think, you know, we should should do something like that in this country. Or any country really should do it, you know, get community groups together, get user groups together, help each other out. Because these prices on eBay of retro systems are going ridiculous. But if you know places where you can get them locally, help each other out. It's a good thing. It's cool. That's the best thing I like about meeting up with people at shows because I can talk about something and they'll be like, oh, this. Or or everybody's like a little knowledge bank of advice and they can all kind of help each other. And it's really nice, actually. They're not trying to look to stab each other in the back. You know, they're like, they're not like, oh, He's got that nice car. Let's 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 buy it off him cheap. They're like, oh, I get that working, and you know, you've got something rare there, mate. You know, it's good. And on that note, if anyone wants to bring Ravier Vextrex to play Glasgow this weekend, he'd, uh, <laughs> I can't take that it. back on the train. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are coming along to play, have a wonderful weekend. I'm so jealous, um, but I look forward to hearing the panel on uh, next week's podcast and uh, the pictures as well. I'm sure there'll be plenty in videos. Oh, yeah, definitely. You're out there with the right people for videos, aren't you? Plenty of YouTubers out there. So if you go and have a good time, um, we'll be out again next Friday. Uh, please do keep your reviews coming in. If you enjoy the podcast every week, they do really, really help us. And of course, you can find out all the stories that we talked about in this week's show at theretrohour.com. Right, let's get old school. Boulder Dash, the days of Atari. Peter Leeper is this week's special guest. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome our guest on the podcast this week. Welcome to the show, and thank you for coming on. Peter, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Now, um, we're going to get into some, I'm sure, very interesting stories about uh, classic games like Boulder Dash. You know, we can't wait to talk more about that. But let's get a little bit of a kind of background on you first. Um, What first got you into computers and games? Do you remember when you first came across them? Well, I'm old enough to admit that there were probably no games when I first got into computers, or if they were, they were very simple, like tic-tac-toe. So I've always been kind of a a math science nerd. That was the sort of thing I was good at at school. I also had a, a lot of passing interests in music and art and animation and so on. And it was high school that I first encountered computers. We had a kind of field week where I went to a science lab and I think they were expecting me to help build physics experiment equipment, that sort of thing. But they took us on a tour of the computer lab and I refused to leave and basically taught myself programming like in the few days that I had. Uh, what kind of machine was that? Well, this would have been a, you know, the old IBM Selectric terminal, that sort of thing. It would be hooked up to a mainframe then? Yes. Yeah, it was, it was a large research establishment in Ottawa. It would have been hooked up to a mainframe with all sorts of scientific languages and software and whatnot. And I had this little math problem that in hindsight was terribly simple, but I had no idea how to fix it. But I thought I'd write a program to help me figure it out. Did you have any kind of reference material or any help from anybody to to learn how to program on these machines? 
I must have had. I mean, there was there was a staff member at the computer center who I think was helpful, and um, I probably seen the odd computer manual. Like my father brought home an old computer manual from the hospital where he worked, and uh, so I, I must have had some awareness of what was going on. But on the other hand, uh, had never had my hands on this sort of thing. So. Yeah, you, it's basically a crash course. You learn what a loop is, and you learn what a conditional is, and so on and so forth. But I, I guess, you know, some of us get the bug. Well, at university, you did study physics, and then you switched to maths. I mean, did that help you forward your programming skills and improve them? I'm going to say not really. I did take some computer courses on the side. I, I gave up physics very quickly. Um, math was just more cut and dried for me. And I, I did take two or three computer courses that tended to be the more advanced kind, but um, I probably learned more there than in the math curriculum. The math department did have a little computer center where we could play on APL terminals. Again, APL is one of these ancient languages. And uh, yes, I, I probably set the record for wasting paper on printouts. Well, do you remember when you first encountered a game then? Well, video games were beginning to make their appearance, what, in the early 70s, you know, Pong, that sort of thing. Actually, I get, yeah, you know, sometime in the 70s. And I think the first actual computer game I may have played would, again, have been on a university mainframe. It was a game called Adventure, which I think you've probably heard of. Yeah. And, uh, well, as you know, that's a text a text game only. But, uh, yeah, at the time it was fascinating. I, I remember stumbling upon it with a fellow grad student and you know we were just immersed so i'm sure my experience with early electronic gaming was similar to anybody else's who was around at the time well when was the first time you saw an atari then so of course i think apple computers like the apple ii would have been late 70s around that time i would have been getting a little bit experience with things like the trs-80 uh, which I think I bought briefly from a store before I returned it a month later. Trying to put, <laughs> wow, we're going back. And, and and so the first time I would have seen Atari actually was with a friend who was, you know, much more free spending than I was, and and bought every latest gadget, you know, uh, sound equipment and computer equipment, and he would have had things like the Atari fifty two hundred. Is that right? Yeah, that was a more advanced one, wasn't it? Well, no, there's a 2600, 5200. You would have had one of those, uh, so the game console, and then I think he would have upgraded to an Atari 400. And he, of course, had a large screen TV. You can only imagine the kind of technology those things were. I don't, I don't know what, how old you guys are, but well before your time, I'm guessing. <laughs> was this a big projection TV, or was it a CRT? Yeah, it was something like that. I can't remember. It was either a huge tube or a projection. I can't remember, but, you know, it sort of filled the apartment that he lived in, and, and we would have little video game nights and play all the Atari games of, of the time. And uh, that's where I had this, I can do this moment. So... Yeah, I, I kind of stopped stopped my job and looked around for uh, how do I get into this business. So did you buy an Atari machine yourself? I did. I bought an Atari 800. The thing probably cost about as much as a MacBook Pro does now. So the, there seems to be this constant amount of money that you spend on new machines. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter whether it was 30 years ago or today. 
And they were good machines, the 800, actually, and the 400. The Atari computers were actually well-made, weren't they? Uh, they were. I really think it was a great machine. Um, the main difference with the 800 was that it had a real keyboard. The Atari 400 had a, you know, a membrane keyboard, which was annoying. Well, how did the story of Boulder Dash come around then, and what was the inspiration for that game? I was really casting about, well, where do I start? And I am not one to just jump into things. I was hesitant about, well, what kind of game should I write? You know, are there genres that were in more demand from publishers, say, than others? And I had heard somehow about a local, I I was living in Toronto at the time, uh, so a Toronto area publisher had already published a game or two. So I approached them and asked them, what kind of genre would you like to see? And they said, well, we happen to have a game that we're interested in that the programmer has gotten to the demo stage but really doesn't have the skills to bring a production or commercial stage. Why don't you get together with him? And this was Chris Gray, who was, I can never remember the age, but he was fairly young, let's say 15 plus or minus a year. And he had indeed worked up this basic well, in the language basic, a demo of his game. And uh, I thought, okay, this should be easy. Um, Publisher would like me to convert it to machine code so that they can publish. This will be a sort of quick and easy way to, you know, get get my feet wet in the the industry and see what it's all about. So um, that was was the whole idea, was simply to convert that demo into, uh, into something that was shippable. Unfortunately, after a few days, I mean, all this happened fairly quickly. Um, after a few days of actually setting myself up, uh, ready to work on this project, getting all my business commitments out of the way, and looking at the whole thing, I thought, well, A, it looks like something I've seen in arcades already, and B, I just, it's no fun to play. But we do have this idea of rocks and dirt and digging. Let's see what I can do with that. And so I basically stripped the whole mechanics down to bare essentials, just using little squares and circles to represent dirt and rocks, and uh, built what's called a an automaton. The game of life is, a, is an example of that. And uh, basically, over the course of a few days, I, I worked out some just simple rock physics. What what Chris had done was, I think, pre-programmed some rock falls, and they were far and few between. And uh, again, it didn't make for anything very interesting. But um, yeah, when I had this little sandbox that I built where I could just, you know, arbitrarily have tons and tons of rocks or dirt or whatever in whatever combination or patterns I wanted, I just found the whole thing very addictive. So that's where Boulder Dash started. Because the uh, physics in the game are fantastic, like the way that you move a rock and other parts fall and everything. It's uh, incredibly complex for uh, a, a, an older Atari game. Um, did your background in physics and maths help a bit with this inspiration? Yeah, yeah the, the background helped. As I said, the cellular automaton, um, that concept had been around in the rather well-known game of life. As far as physics are concerned, no, I don't, I don't think the physics, like the physics here are entirely stupid, right? There's no such thing as acceleration or force. Um, you know, a or a boulder would simply drop if there was an empty space below it. If it dropped onto another boulder because, well, boulders around, it would just sort of turn the corner, right? It would roll off and continue falling, and it would eventually stop when there was no place to go. I, I've, I've got to say the whole thing was, was really simple. Um, we're not talking about the physics that you see in modern games, you know, which is very realistic and based on 
relatively sophisticated math and and physics. I find it quite interesting that you mentioned that you actually kind of scaled down the original gameplay to like the, the raw elements to make it more fun. I mean, was the original design of the game more complicated? Did it have kind of more stuff going on? I don't know that I'd say there was much design. Again, it was a demo, basically, um, you know, pretty canned. Uh, one of these days, I, I'm going to see if I can excavate the, uh, you know, the original basic program. I, I've actually got somebody in the U.S. who's working on on uh, transferring some of this stuff to modern media. But um, there was a game around at the time called The Pit. Chris's game was very much, I think, inspired by that. And uh, there, a robot lands from outer space, gets out of a flying saucer, and then digs down into a subterranean world where there happens to be dirt and rocks, but I think the main feature is some pool of acid at the bottom with little monsters that he's got to get through. And uh, he might have to actually fetch something or retrieve something and then bring it back up to the flying saucer at the top and fly off. But, you, you know, there, there are videos of the pit on YouTube that you can you can watch. Well, some of the uh, subtle things in the design were fantastic, like little elements of his foot tapping and blinking kind of gave uh, Little Rockford a personality. Uh, where did these ideas come from? Yeah, now, now we're getting the high-level stuff, which came a lot later. Like, again, for me, what made the whole idea compelling was that it was just fun to play with the physics, even if the physics were just X's and O's and blanks and squares. So for a long time, the game was just... Uh, well, you guys have presumably used an Atari, 400, 800. But it had a screen, I think, that was 24 by 8. 24 by 40 characters was kind of the main mode. And so every little entity like uh, rock or a piece of wall would have been one of those characters, but with a custom character set. So for a long time, that was that was the domain uh, under which Boulder Dash was being developed, you know, sort of working out... Um, you know, I, I had to go beyond the just raw physics of rocks and dirt and a joystick digging through this stuff and reacting to it. So generally, these little X's and O's and squares began to be replaced by custom characters and other entities are being added like fireflies and uh, jewels. And all this was more or less to kind of give a context to just the free digging and give goals. So as much as Digging dirt was fun, watching avalanches be, being created and getting through little fields of rocks was interesting. Uh, you had to sort of monetize or gamify the whole thing, and so other characters came along. And it was probably later on, really, in the process that the, the stuff began being beautified. And um, I remember showing early versions to the publisher who was saying, well, this is nice, but you know, we want to see more of a character here, right? I, I think at the time I probably had a stick figure for what's now called Rockford, and that stick figure may have had some simple animations looking like the uh, the people in Choplifter, but he felt, no, we want more of a hero here. Everything's got to be bigger. So this was actually one of the big challenges was, you know, now making entities twice as large as they were, so now they're two-by-two two characters, and then animating all that stuff and introducing scrolling, like scrolling was not really a concept in the game until 
all of a sudden the caves were twice as big and you required scrolling to get around. So along that evolution, uh, there became there came more detailed uh, concepts for Rockford. And people ask me, well, what is Rockford? Is he an animal or a little man or whatever? And I don't really have an answer for that. It was really, I built my own little pixel sprite editor. And all I wanted was a character that could run, you know, because of the very coarse pixelations and whatever. He kind of came out as he did with a striped shirt and, and big eyes and big head. It's hard to say exactly where the the blinking and the foot tapping came from other than I, you know, I must have tried it. Oh, you know, I'd always wanted to be an animator as a kid. So, uh, in a crude way, I was doing that here. And, uh, I must've just been fooling around with things like eye size or whatever. And then stumbled across these effects of the, the eye blinks and the foot taps and, uh, realized, well, this, or maybe I thought, okay, there's some dead points in the game when nobody's moving the joystick. What do I do? And maybe maybe that was it. Really, just something to bring the character to life when the player was not doing anything. And I think that really helped as well because I know obviously it was kind of used in Sonic the Hedgehog as well um, later on. I think that that element of having your on-screen character kind of get a bit impatient with you sometimes it, it does kind of help you empathize with them a bit more. I think and actually gives them a personality. Yeah, well, I'm not going to claim that um, you know I was some genius who who planned all this from the beginning. I obviously stumbled across it somehow and. You know, a lot of it is necessity, is, is mother of invention. And again, it's, it was the nature of the game that there could be quiet spots, right, where nothing was happening. So maybe I just felt, you know, the vacuum there and the need to bring it in. Once I'd done it, you know, I think it's genius, right, because it just adds so much depth to the character. Like, oh, my God, he's real. He's, he's like, actually thinking. Well, was there actually an end to Boulder Dash then, or did it get harder and harder, or did it just kind of go around on a loop in the same code? Uh, there was no ultimate cave, if that's what you mean. Mm. Um, it's a basic idea. Like, you know, this was the era of, say, um, minor 2049er, where it was pretty standard to have a game with 10 levels. You know, that, that's just where that world was, I think. Um, like probably one level was enough for a lot of games. I don't know. So there were 16 levels that I built and you could enter, they were divided into groups of four. So you could enter on the fifth level and the, the ninth level, etc. I guess it was also usual to have some kind of level of difficulty. So it was easy enough for me to kind of just duplicate those 16 levels and have four extra sets of those where with every set, I think you've got a little less time on the clock, and maybe a higher jewel goal, I can't remember, and possibly faster action. Everything moves a little faster. Again, that, that, that seemed to be kind of the state of the art in those days of how, how you made a game that kind of lasted forever. Uh, you would do it just by speeding things up at every level just a bit until it was pretty well impossible. So to answer your question, technically, well, so there were 16 caves, really, and then technically another 64 above that, but they were all duplicates of the original 16, although a little harder and faster. And uh, so in theory, you could, you could play 80 levels, but there's no big prize for getting to level 80. Were you surprised by the success of Boulder Dash then? Um, I think no, which you know may, may sound a little over entitled but i don't think anybody 
puts their heart and soul into something like this for, say, six months and, and just loves it themselves, I, I think it's somehow no surprise that other people, people would love it. Now, I'm sure that the world is strewn with, you know, music and art and games and TV programs that their creators loved as well and that nobody else looked at. Uh, but in my case, it just it just seemed reasonable that it should do well. Now, I could say that I was also fairly naive and that you need more than a good game. Uh, you probably do need luck and good marketing. And, you know, the, the whole business end of the thing, I just thought was a fait accompli that anybody could do it. Um, I don't think I think that way these days. So in a way, a lot of things had to come together. And perhaps the process is, is more akin to those marble mazes, right? I'm sure you've played where you uh, try to get a marble through a, a maze and there are holes all over the place. Yeah. So in real life, the, or the reality for most projects is that eventually, or you know, for a lot of projects, they eventually drop into one of those holes. And so I think from my point of view, no matter how good the game was, as I delivered it, it still could have fallen into holes and, and never had any kind of success. But again, my, my perspective was it deserved to do well. And so... To answer your question, literally, I was not surprised. Well, Boulder Dash is quite unique in a way because back then it generally went that games would start in the arcade and then get ported to home platforms. But that was kind of the other way around. I mean, when did you first learn it was going to become an arcade machine and what was that conversation like? And also, what were the differences with the, with the arcade? Uh, so First Star would have set up those deals and so I would have really just been informed that a coin op has been created. Um, my recollection is, at least for the very first one, that it was literally the same code. They they took the Atari software, probably took the Atari hardware, put it in a box, you know, with with a coin slot, and that was that was the arcade version. I never personally saw it. Um, I don't know how well it did, but yes, it was notable for I suppose being the first what console or computer to arcade conversion as opposed to the other way around. Well, how did you approach Boulder Dash 2 then? What were you hoping to add or improve over the original? It's pretty well the same thing. Uh, I think I approach it more as um, the, the way you would approach a sitcom franchise or a comic strip in that the basic characters are there and now you put them in different situations. Like, so... For me, one of the thing is, things about Boulder Dash and that cast of characters in physics was that you just had, I'm not going to say an infinite range of puzzles, but really rich possibilities. So Boulder Dash 2, I, I, I don't know that I was feeling particularly, um, to, to me it was more of a gravy thing. It was, okay, uh, design 16 more levels or 20, uh, depending on how you count. Maybe add a couple of new characters, like, I don't know, there were expanding walls or something. I can't even rem remember them. But, yeah, so there may have been a few extra characters to fit into the universe. But, yeah, generated another another 20 caves and uh, a new cover screen and music and done. I, I, I think probably the code was 99% the same. So it was really just uh, taking taking an existing property and adding new episodes. Well, Boulder Dash 3 um, was a bit divisive. I know there are people that love it and people that don't like it as much as the original two. What kind of complaints did people have? Uh, to tell you the truth, I know very little about Boulder Dash 3. I had nothing, 
I believe it is true to say I had absolutely nothing to do with it. As I was mentioning, it became more profitable for First Star to develop content by themselves. And um, they took advantage of that. Just as I thought, well, you know, the developer is the most important part of this whole chain, they probably thought, well, the publisher and the entrepreneur is the most important part of the chain. We'll hire somebody to uh, design caves. And uh, to be honest, you know more about Boulder Dash 3 than I did. Did you never play do. the game then? I No, I don't think I've ever played it. Um, I have no memory of it. Hmm. I mean, I, I know there was a Boulder Dash 3 only because I think there was a construction kit that would have been nominally Boulder Dash 4. They did call me because that project was very much in the weeds. Uh, I think the developer had gotten to a certain point and then couldn't... Uh, there were just bugs that they couldn't fix or something, so they they did ask me to put that back together, rescue it. Well, which I did. Well, I remember being a kid and uh, I had a, a Commodore sixteen. That was my first machine, well, Commodore Plus Four, and there was um, so many clones of Boulder Dash around. I remember one on there was uh, Rock Rockman, I believe it was called, um, and there was Icicle Works. It was very similar as well. I mean, it it must be probably one of the most cloned games of the era. There were so many like kind of different spins on it and people making their own versions. Did you ever, were you aware of those at the time? And what, what did you think of that, if so? I, I think certainly with, with the internet, it became easier and easier to see this sort of stuff. Before then, well, again, you know, I was, I was in a pretty well had gone on to different things. Um, there were two kinds of clones, I think. There were the, what I would call the cracked versions that retained the original code and graphics and all that and simply built new levels. And then people would have inspired been inspired as well to develop versions from scratch. Uh, and then this would have all happened kind of underground and definitely not something that First Star was happy with. Uh, and then meanwhile, they were trying to pursue official official versions and derivatives, this sort of thing. To the degree that I've seen these clones on the internet and let's say YouTube, um, yeah, some of them are great. I mean, obviously, uh, some of the people developing levels there knew what they were doing, understood the game, you know, knew how to, knew how to create novel situations, and then there would also be just total hack jobs. So you saw the whole range. Well, there's a wonderful official forum and a community called Atari Age, and they kind of do repos and uh, you know hacked versions of games and release them. They did an official release of um, Boulder Dash for the 2600 with a box and manual. I was wondering if you'd seen that and if you've got a copy yourself. I think I heard about this. There was some engineer, and I think he did this with First Star's Blessing, although there may have been more than one project, so I, I don't know whether I'm talking about the same one. But yes, I'd, I'd heard, I think, from somebody who had had first-hand experience with the 2600, I'd heard that, you know, that was a really difficult machine to program, and, and therefore I just assumed that the, you know, the sheer intellectual feat of getting Bola Dash to run on that hardware was, was quite impressive. Uh, I've also seen versions implemented on hand calculators. It actually looked like a pretty good version. Um, I didn't play it myself, but uh, the neat thing is that since Boulder Dash runs on 4K, 8K, that sort of thing, essentially it will it will run on any spec of electronics these days. You know, you could probably program your Fitbit or something to, to do Boulder Dash. Well, um, you recently did the uh, Boulder Dash 
30th anniversary. Uh, was it fun to kind of be working on the title again and getting stuck in? Very mixed feelings. Again, uh, you know, Boladash for me is something that was very intense for about a year. It definitely had its stresses. I mean, the, you know, there are kind of business stresses here that I haven't alluded to, but uh, behind the scenes, it was not a bed of roses. I mean, you know, there were occasional disputes with First Star about this and that. So in a way, Boladash was a bit of a, um, it was both a point of pride and great memories, but it was all, there, there was also a whole maintenance aspect or backroom aspect of it that was just business and drudgery. So it was really their project. I think when they finally had it at a state where it could be demoed and played on a laptop, uh, they again tried to get me involved, and I did agree to do what's called a DLC pack. And uh, so that was pretty well the extent of my involvement. To answer your question, once I agreed to do that, and you know, I have to say this is in the context of, well, you know, it's great for nostalgia purposes, and it really is a satisfying activity developing a game. It was it was it, it was quite time consuming. You know, uh, my usual way of working is to stare at the wall for hours and hours, or go on a bike ride and and come up with an idea, stop. And in the old days, I would have written it down on a pad of paper, and now I would get out my iPhone and tap it in and then go home. And uh, so you, you basically kind of work, wait for inspiration to come. And when it does come, it's just fantastic. Um, and it makes any other drudgery very much worthwhile. So I could say that with the new physics, which I believe, you know, the community may not have welcomed as much as the old physics. Um, I did try to work as best as I could with the new physics um, and exploit all the angles that came out of it. And it turned out there were just really rich opportunity for cave designs. I don't know whether you've played any of the caves I built, but uh, so there's that. I, I would say actually Boulder Dash 30, certainly the yeah the basic caves have a, well, there's certainly a lot more of them. But I, I would I'd like to think that, yeah, the stuff in my levels really, really began to dig deeply into the potential of, of the physics they'd built. I guess it's always kind of a risk revisiting such a classic and well-established franchise as well, because, I mean, we, we've said this in our show before, that kind of when you're dealing with nostalgia, you're also dealing with people's memories of the original as well. So it's kind of a hard balance between improving the technology with what we can do today and, you know, being faithful to the original too. Yeah, it's it's certainly a slam dunk. Um, you still have to know what you're doing. And uh, I'm not really that much aware of the game industry these days, but, you know, you see it in movies all the time that... Um, Either somebody has taken an existing franchise, like let's say a comic book franchise, and, and done brilliantly with it, or come up with something that's just a total mess. So it's not easy. Uh, I do know that many people did have the reaction of, yeah, we don't like these new graphics. Bring us the, bring us the classic graphics. And the same you know, complaints that the classic gameplay had been perverted or corrupted somehow with this new stuff. I could have taken that point of view, but I didn't. Uh, I think it was more a matter of the new gameplay was different and it led to different puzzles. And uh, in my case, I think very good puzzles. Generally, I, I think I may have complained that the whole thing had been a little too Candy Crushified. 
So yes, the, the whole thing. Although I think Candy Crush is is you know one of the great achievements in gaming history, I think that maybe Bullet the Bullet Dash Thirty took a little too much from its book. And I guess if people do want to play the original, I mean, you know, it's it's easier than ever now, isn't it? You can play Boulder Dash in a web browser. I'm sure these days it's a oh, exactly yeah. they're JavaScript versions. Yeah, they're perfectly good versions all over the place. Yeah. And it is testament to your original design as well that all these years later people are still playing the game and still interested in it. I mean, I can't imagine you'd have uh, ever imagined that when you were coding the original game that three decades later people would still be enjoying it and playing it. Yeah, I have to say that part I did not imagine. So you asked me earlier, was I surprised at the success? I will say rightly or wrongly, I was not surprised. If you asked me, did I expect it to still be a thing 35 years later? I would have said no way, and um, uh, you know I have to say I would have I would have written that publishing contract in a different way if I'd known. You know my mental model was you know it's the same as music or films they're on the market for three to six to twelve months and then they're gone. So yeah, th- that that's the part that has both amazed me and that I would never have predicted. Well, Peter, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the story of Boulder Dash. It's been really, really interesting to uh, to get those stories from you. So thanks for coming on the podcast. It's thanks really- so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, uh, well, thank you, guys. Thank you.